0: Hello, this is Guardian Daily for Thursday the 4th of February. I'm Andy Duckworth. On today's podcast, five years after slipping into a vegetative state, scientists have managed to communicate with a man injured in a car crash.
1: There's surely nothing worse than actually being conscious. Um, If you're in an inert body and you're not showing any signs of activity, you can't communicate with anybody even though there are people around you. Why British armed
0: forces could soon be working more closely with France. No nation can hope to protect all aspects of national security acting alone. We can't simply defend from the goal line and our defence posture must reflect this. Iran's president says he has no problem handing uranium over to the West. We speak to Matt Damon about his new film, but we first needed to address some important questions surrounding this newspaper's reputation in one of his born films.
2: So in the next one we want, if we have a Guardian journalist, he's gotta to be tougher. I think it, so. But yeah. you know, maybe if he could be your sidekick, you know, sort of generally <laughs> in, in there with you in the film and not dying, that would nice. be All that right. would be good.
0: First, new research on a patient in a vegetative state is raising questions over the treatment and care given to those in similar situations. Scientists have managed to communicate with a 29-year-old man who suffered a severe head injury in 2003. He's presumed to have slipped from a coma and into a vegetative state, showing no sign of being aware of the outside world. But an extraordinary experiment means he's been able to respond to questions via his thoughts. Sarah Bosley's our health editor.
1: These scientists have worked out a way of allowing this guy to communicate. First of all, they took a lot of, of ordinary people and said to them, "Right, we're going to watch your brain activity when you do two different things. First of all, when you think about doing something active that involves motor activity, Uh, and they were talking of playing tennis, so think of playing tennis, think of swinging your arm about and the other one was, think of wandering about through your house, looking at everything that is around you. And, and that's a spatial activity. And those things cause movement, cause activity in different parts of the brain. So they're able to, to work out with um, healthy people what, which bits of the brain lit up when they thought about these two different things. So then they tried it on this one guy who was in a persistent vegetative state, so he'd shown absolutely no sign at all of uh, being conscious for the last seven years, in fact, since he was 22 and was in a car crash. And they put him in an MRI scanner so they could map his brain. And they said to him, OK, think of playing tennis if you mean yes, and think of wondering about your house if you mean no. And then they were able to ask him questions like, you know, is your father's name Alexander? Is your father's name Thomas? Do you have any brothers? Those sorts of things. And they actually were able to communicate with him because he was able to answer yes or no.
0: And that was just one participant in a in a wider study wasn't it?
1: Well, there were twenty three people who were actually in a persistent vegetative state uh, on whom they tried this business of think of something spatial you know think of tennis, think of moving around your home just to to see whether there was the brain activity going on and out of those twenty three they found four of them who actually were responsive, which probably means that something like 17%, Dr. Adrian Owen, who did the research, said it could be more, it could be maybe one in five, actually are maybe fully conscious, he thinks they're fully conscious, that because you need a certain amount of uh, cognitive function, of brain activity going on, even to understand what they were being asked, um, let alone to have the memory to remember what tennis is about and those sort of things. So he thinks that maybe one in five people in a PVS, persistent vegetative state, are in fact fully conscious.
0: And clearly this raises issues over treatment and care and, and right-to-die issues as well.
1: I think it, what's really interesting is the fact that these people have been locked in uh, in the same way that the, um, the French editor and the uh, Belger on the butterfly was, um, that they they are able, they weren't, he was able to communicate through blinking his eyes. These people haven't been able to communicate at all. It raises the possibility that with electronic gadgets, computerized, brain-powered um, computer perhaps in the future, they may be able to say to people, you know, think, think this, think that, and actually get a yes, no. They could maybe do what they did with the the Frenchman and enable him to talk through, enable people to talk through using the letters of the alphabet, for instance. A very long, ponderous process, but it does mean proper communication. So that's interesting. You know, some of us might think there's surely nothing worse than actually being conscious Um, if you're in an inert body and you're not showing any signs of activity. You can't communicate with anybody, even though there are people around you. So there are issues around that too. And, of course, one of the questions that people would be able to ask of someone like that is, do you really want to carry on living?
0: And you can read Sarah Bosley's article in full at guardian.co.uk slash health and, just a few clicks away...
1: I'm Sarah Phillips from G2, the Guardian's Daily Features section. In today's issue, the likes of Sir David Attenborough and Sheila Hancock tell us why the television reviews of our critic Nancy Banksmith, who has been with us for 40 years, are still the best in the business. Peter Bradshaw explains why the battle between exes Catherine Bigelow and James Cameron and their very different films will be the big story at this year's Oscars, and columnist Deborah Orr gives her verdict on the Chilcot Inquiry so far. All this and more at guardian.co.uk forward slash g2.
0: A full-scale strategic review of the British Armed Forces is on the cards. It's after the Defence Secretary published a green paper which lays the groundwork for changes after the general election. Bob Ainsworth's also told MPs no nation can hope to protect national security acting alone. We, can, we certainly cannot assume... That the conflicts of tomorrow, however, will replicate those of today. We must anticipate a wide range of threats and plan for the requirements necessary to counter them. Mr Speaker, we've come a long way since the last major defence review in 1998. This gave us the platform to modernise our armed forces. But looking forward, we'll need to make decisions about the role that we want the United Kingdom to play in the world, and the capabilities that our armed forces need to support that role. The Guardian's security editor, Richard Norton-Taylor, was at the MOD briefing and is here to tell us what this means in practice. Are we going to be teaming up with France?
3: No, it's not, I mean, there's a great hype about how much we're going to cooperate with uh, France. France is mentioned once in this green paper, which does raise more questions than it answers. And, uh, but one of the reasons why it says we should... Cooperate with France more. It's for, it's for sort of financial reasons. That's the implication. If we share more uh, operational responsibilities, or and certainly if we buy the same kit, be cheap, it'll be cheaper for both of us. There have been talks with the French,
0: uh, and this will upset some people, won't it? Teaming up with a, another country.
3: Well, if you, <laughs> the point of the the government, if the government says it's going to um, that's going to upset the, some of the uh, the conservatives, the Tories, who are sort of you know quote anti-European unquote. Um, Liam Fox, the Tory 's defence uh, shadow secretary, uh, said, uh, and uh, the French have told me today that they've been talking to the Tories as well. So it's not a it's not a big issue, so long as it's a bilateral relationship. It's not a quote beginning of a quote European army and stuff like that. And that also, the green paper of the government says that you know the US, of course, remains our biggest ally and strongest ally. You know.
0: Now, we've heard the new chief of the army say Britain's involvement in Afghanistan could last forty years. How does that prediction look today?
3: Well, I think, yeah, I think we're slightly sort of uh, loose talk there. What it, I think he meant uh, the army may be, may be training there. There certainly won't be combat, British combat troops in Afghanistan for more than uh, two or three or four years max, I think, is the, is the uh, expectation now, actually. But this, um, uh, I mean, if we're talking about this green paper that came out, today, it d- does raise more questions than it answers. And the big question is the uh, huge... 35 billion gap between what the armed forces are now, what the Minister of Defence have said the armed forces can buy—trident missiles, def- uh, aircraft carriers, and fast jets, and so on—and what the budget is likely to be year by year, and that—that doesn't—that's a big question for, the, for for the next government because Trident's going to stay, and that's what it excluded from this defence review, and so uh, and the government today. Bob Ainsworth, the Defence Secretary, as Gordon Brown has said, we're going to keep these two new aircraft carriers. At least we're going to uh, continue building them. And those two items themselves cost about £25 at least initially. And uh, that's a huge chunk out of the £5 a year defence procurement budget.
0: So there are a lot of unanswered questions. Now, it wasn't just future cuts under the microscope yesterday. David Cameron accused Gordon Brown of guillotining the budget for Iraq and Afghanistan. What the Prime Minister has just said is completely at odds with what witness after witness has said to the children inquiry. Let's listen to what they said. The former Defence Secretary said we now have fewer helicopters because of the decisions he took as Chancellor. The former Chief of the Defence Staff, General Walker, said money was taken out of the helicopter budget. We've had soldier after soldier who's complained about lack of body armour, vehicles and equipment, and we now know the service chiefs threatened to resign en masse. Isn't it time the Prime Minister admitted to his mistakes that he made when he was Chancellor? Yeah. How vulnerable is Brown on this issue?
3: He'll certainly be questioned on it when he gives uh, evidence to the Chilcot Inquiry at the end of this month or beginning of March because uh, many uh, witnesses to the Chilcot Inquiry, senior civil servants, some ministers, Jeff, who Who, the Defence Secretary at the time, and a lot of military commanders, too, of course, have said that uh, we were squeezed at the crucial time, 2003, the year of the invasion of Iraq, and afterwards, 2004, also when we were thinking of moving in heavily into Afghanistan, which we did uh, make a decision that year as well. On now, um, Brown uh, tries to dismiss this. He says uh, uh, the, the uh, defense secretary at the time, Jeff Hoon. He said he was very happy. But he is vulnerable. He is vulnerable because these people who complain about the Treasury cuts or Treasury squeezing on the defence budget at
0: that crucial time can't you know, be all making it up. For more on this, go to guardian.co.uk slash politics. Now, staying with security matters and there's scepticism from the West over Iran's offer to send uranium abroad for enrichment... Iran's president, Mahmoud Ahmadinejad, has surprised some by agreeing to the request from the UN. This deal means he'd get the radioactive material back several months later, after it had been enriched by 20%. Clearly, the worry is, if Iran was allowed to enrich it itself, it could be used for nuclear weapons. Our diplomatic editor is Julian Borgia. Now, Julian, just run us through the sequence of events leading up to this. uh, Delay tactics, basically.
4: The original deal that was struck in Geneva back in October was this, that Iran would export most, about 75% of its stockpile of low-enriched uranium uh, to Russia. And then after a certain amount of time that it would take to enrich that further and turn it into fuel rods probably in France. About a year later they will get fuel rods which they would use in their research reactor in Tehran for, for creating medical isotopes for medical purposes. The, the The idea of a delay was critical from the West point of view because it would reduce Iran's stockpile of uranium for a period of a year, reduce it below to this, this critical threshold that gives them enough to make a a bomb if they were to highly enrich it. Uh, And so buy time for diplomacy. Now, the the Iranian reply that they gave last month is, yeah, we'll do the deal, but we'll just do a swap, uh, a direct swap, Uh, which means that from the West point of view, it it would be pointless because it wouldn't create this delay. It wouldn't reduce the Iranian stockpile. And so that was rejected. Uh, Now, what President Ahmadinejad is doing is raising again the possibility that maybe there could be a delay, which is something that Tehran has, in the recent weeks and months, ruled out. So it, again, raises the prospects that that, that Tehran might be ready to come back to the table.
0: Now, the West, it's fair to say, isn't particularly convinced
4: about this. They're pretty sceptical. Well that's right. Um A because there's been lots of toing and froing and you have got to remember this started because Iran agreed in principle to the deal and that back in October uh, and that created a whole lot of optimism that was then dashed because they went back on that agreement uh, and then there was lots of delay wake, waiting for a direct answer and it seemed last month that uh, Iran had given a direct answer that it was only interested if it was a, a direct uh, simultaneous swap which was not acceptable so most people thought the deal was over. And now it, it seems to be back on the table, but there are a lot of details that Ahmadinejad did not make clear. Would it be all at once or in, in batches, which again would unlikely to be acceptable. Um, and it's unclear whether there is agreement in Tehran over this because there, there is clearly a debate going on. Uh, and this is maybe some of the reason why there's been delay and mixed signals because not everyone in Tehran agrees.
0: And on a slight tangent, uh, this all comes as Iran's tested
4: a rocket with some interesting cargo on board. That's right, because there's been all this focus on what Iran can put on the tip of a rocket, uh, and it's turned out they put twelve worms, one rat, and two turtles uh, in the uh, the payload of, of a uh, a medium range uh, missile. Um, now it, you know, it it sounds funny to the Iranians. It is uh, it reflects on what they can do if they can send you know, living things up at the end of a, a rocket. It puts them on the sort of first rank of science as far as they're concerned. To to the West, which always takes some, a more paranoid view of this, it, it's another warning that they can do a lot of things on, on their rockets. Uh, it may raise fears in, in Israel about that their capacity to deliver biological weapons, for example, uh, or to use uh, the payload for other kinds of warhead. But from the Iranian point of view, it is another reflection of their advances in science.
0: Julian Borgia, and there's more on this at guardian.co.uk slash Iran. A new film about Nelson Mandela picked up two Oscar nominations this week, Invictus, directed by Clint Eastwood, is a movie about sports and healing in South Africa. It stars Morgan Freeman and Matt Damon, both of whom picked up nominations for their performances. The film's released in the UK tomorrow. The Guardian's Ben Child got to speak to Matt Damon. They began by chatting about our newspaper's pivotal role in the plot of The Bourne Ultimatum and the fictional journalist who bites the dust
2: he found himself in above his head, you know I mean? He certainly did, yeah. That was tough, I mean, he was pursuing the story. He was the right. one guy out there pursuing sure. the story. But sure, yeah. Yeah, yeah, he definitely, that, that was a bad day at a, for, for old Patty. Yeah, uh, and for Guardian journalists, I think, <laughs> generally. <laughs> <laughs> but you managed to make the Guardian office look quite, you know, presentable. Look, look presentable, right? Which is, yeah. which is yeah. impressive because yeah. it's, it's, it's the old Guardian office and it's really not that presentable at all. all right. But you made it look quite cool. So. so so in the next one we want, if we have a Guardian journalist, he's got to be tougher? I think Isn't so, it? yeah. You know, we kind of like him to be <laughs> look, maybe... he made sort- a run for it. He, yeah. made, he went, you know, he, he went against Bourne's kind of direct... It's true, but you yeah. know, maybe if he could be your sidekick, you know, sort of generally <laughs> in, in there with you in the film and not dying, that would, nice. be, that right. would be good, you know. All right, I'm going to tell Paul. Okay. Gonna, I think Paul's going to go tonight to the premiere, so I'll tell him. Good stuff, that'll tell be him. brilliant. The Guardian is right pissed off about this little thing. <laughs> Fantastic. And now, um, Invictus is um, set very early on in the, uh, the post-apartheid era. And um, it really centers mainly on South Africa's <coughs> remarkable but uh, unlikely victory in the 1995 World Cup. Um, can you tell us a bit more about the film and, and specifically your, your role? Sure, uh, yeah, it's about um, it's a Mandela film, really. And, and uh, Morgan Freeman had been actually asked by Mandela himself. He said, you know, when Mandela published Long Walk to the Freedom, they said, you know, they asked him at a press conference, if, if, if there's ever a movie made, who would you like to portray you? And he said, Morgan Freeman. Now, this was before Morgan met Mandela, so it was quite an honor. And, and so Morgan called him and said, listen, if I'm going to play you, I, I'm going to need access to you. And he ended up over the years, kind of sporadically, meeting up with Mandela. If they were in, near, near each other anywhere in the world, Morgan would go visit with him. And so he saw him in all of these different circumstances, and um, publicly and privately, and, Uh, And so everyone kind of knew that there was going to be a Mandela movie eventually
0: with Morgan playing Mandela. And you can watch the video of that interview later today where they talk much more about the new film at guardian.co.uk slash video. That's it for today's Guardian Daily. Please leave your comments on the blog. You'll find that at guardian.co.uk slash Guardian Daily. That's where our archive is too. While you're there, make sure you subscribe for free, of course. And you can follow us on Twitter. Search for Guardian Daily. Today's podcast was produced by Phil Maynard. I'm Andy Duckworth. Thanks for listening.